Hello, everyone. Um, in this episode of the Hewlett Packard's Lab podcast, From Research to Reality, uh, in our uh, new series on the future of HPC or high performance computing, I have a great honor and pleasure to cross Duncan Roeth, uh, distinguished technologist in the Chief Technology Office of High Performance Computing and Mission Critical Systems of the Hewlett Packard. Uh, hello, Duncan. Hello, Dan. Uh, Again, we have a, a, a very uh, long and complicated, complex, uh, very insightful title. So can you explain to us what does this title mean and what are your roles and responsibilities? Uh, in sure. Um, so I work on, the, on uh, new product development um, within the um, HPC and um, mission critical uh, business unit. And I'm working on the development of Slingshot, which is a network technology. So I'm looking at what Slingshot's going to do in future and how it's going to be used in, in HPE systems. So you are working on it now, but uh, you didn't just happen to be working on it. <laughs> no. It must be a long history. Can you tell us how did you get to this point? Uh, sure. So I, I joined um, HPE uh, in January of this year uh, with the acquisition of Cray. Um, before, before that, um, I'd worked for Cray since, um, uh, since 2009. Um, so I worked on um, ARES, which was the, um, the network that's used in our uh, XC systems. Um, I worked on a, uh, a network technology called Pisces, which in the end, we ended up selling in the end. Um, and then I worked on Slingshot. Um, before that, I, I'd worked for a small network company called Quadrix. In fact, I worked for uh, uh, for, for Compaq and um, with, with HP while I was at Quadrix as well. So you have a pretty good strategy. You work with a company and then you go and conquer it from inside. <laughs> I, I'd, um, for most of my career, I'd been working for companies that competed with Cray. Um, so uh, in the end, um, the obvious thing to do was to go and join Cray. Yeah, if you can't win them, join them. Uh, I have heard a lot about Slingshot and, and previous interconnects by Cray and Quadrix. I happen to know about Quadrix. Um, and I heard a lot about all-to-all -all networks. Can you explain to us uh, what does it mean, all-to-all -all networks? I mean, I presume you can communicate from any node to any node anyway. So why all-to-all -all title? Um, yeah, the, the, the idea behind um, all-to-all networks is to build low diameter networks so that you can, you can get from anywhere to anywhere um, in the minimum number of hops. Um, and that means that equates to using the minimum amount of power. Um, it means minimizing the cost of the network to provide a certain level of performance. Um, so they were, um, they were developed as part of the, um, the um, a DARPA program called HPCS, which was High Productivity um, Computing Systems Program. And they're actually developed by both, um, both Cray and IBM um, at the time. And we brought ours to market as part of the Cray XE product. Um, I say the key thing is to minimize the number of components that you're using. Um, and the, um, the basic idea is that you, um, uh, you connect together um, all of the switches that are within a cabinet or within some locality. Um, you build an all-to-all -all network 
a local auto network amongst those. Um, and then you replicate that structure and you have a second auto network that connects those cabinet level, they're called groups in the Dragonfly network that we use, connects those groups together. So you have, you really have two autos, one at the, the cabinet level and one at the system level. And so, so when you're sort of, when you're moving data from one to one part of the machine to another, you have to go through a local one and then across the global auto and then across the global one again. So that was um, historical motivation for uh, all to all. And uh, now we have these exascale systems. So how did you transfer that original um, work on all to all to today's systems that, that, that are tremendously larger in scale? Um, they are larger in scale. Um, the, um, the networks like um, um, Dragonfly and like the um, uh, the HyperX network that uh, was being developed within HP Labs at the same time. They, they are designed to scale to, um, to large system size, so tens or hundreds of thousands of, of endpoints. Um, at, the, at the time we were uh, developing the, um, we were doing the initial research for exascale systems, we didn't know quite how big they were going to be, but we knew that they were going to have uh, between tens and hundreds of thousands of of, um, um, of network endpoints. So, so we were kind of we were designing for that scale, um, and um, then we were looking to take the um, uh, take what we'd learned about building the uh, building and maintaining all those XC systems, um, and feed that into what we were doing um, within Slingshot um, in order to to build. Um, a successor network for our mainstream product, but also to be able to build these very big exascale networks. So today we are almost approaching these exascale systems. The first one will be delivered next year and then successively more and more. Yeah. Uh, but we traveled a similar path with Petascale. That was also, you know, let's charge, let's get to Petascale. Can you draw some comparisons? Are there lessons learned from Petascale uh, target applied to uh, exascale and then the, the following one. So um, this, um, this movement or this progression from, um, from uh, Terra scale to Petra scale to, um, and on to exascale is really a, a history of Cray. So um, we, uh, uh, we weren't always the first company to, to get Linpack at a particular level, but um, you know, we were, we ran the first at a teraflop on the YMPs in, in 1998, because I was competing with Gray at the time. Um, and then the first, um, uh, the first application petaflop um, on the Oak Ridge um, Jaguar system. So uh, over that time, the, um, the systems have been getting a lot bigger. Um, the, um, um, the, the, uh, the main change in recent years has been to, um, uh, to use much much higher levels of parallelism, so um, we were um, we were working on how to get as much parallelism um, into the systems as possible, and how to use that within the software. Um, and that that trend has continued over over the whole of this period, um, so that um, exascale systems will be literally be doing billions of operations at a time. Um, and um, the um, um, 
And then the other, the other big theme over this period was how to achieve this level of performance um, without huge, um, without really huge amounts of power. So um, the power is still pretty high. Um, the, um, the first, um, the first exaflop systems are likely to use 30 to 40 megawatts. Um, and um, that was back in sort of 2008 when this uh, program started. Um, that was one of the biggest obstacles. You know, people, would, the initial target was to try and limit that figure to 20, uh, to 20 megawatts. Yep. Now, over, over that time, of course, people have become used to cloud data centers drawing rather more power than that. So the, the power side of things has gone up a bit, but we've still done we still achieved a lot in going from um, uh, pet scale systems drawing maybe five or six megawatts um, to you know a thousand times that level of performance with five or six times the level of power consumption. Um, I just said parallelism and um, and power consumption were the uh, the big themes over all this period. When people talk about exascale, they primarily talk about compute. It stands yeah. for it. yeah. But to get there, um, interconnect is really critical. So, so can you explain to us why is your work on Slingshot uh, essential for reaching exascale? So our job in designing the network fabric is to connect together tens of thousands of nodes. Um, um, in the, um, there are a couple of different um, types of systems that are being considered. Um, some systems with um, um, with really quite powerful nodes uh, with many GPUs in each nodes and, and other ones like the Japanese machines with um, uh, much larger numbers of nodes. Um, but, but the role of the network is to, um, is to connect them all together and enable an application uh, potentially to run across the whole machine. Although actually the workload tends to be um, a, 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 it isn't just a single job at a time. Usually, there's there's going to be um, a range of different um, of different jobs running up on the machine at the same time. Um, so you have to be able to scale to the maximum system size, um, and then you have to be able to run a mixed workload. So one one in which um, the ne the network um, is acting for for is the network is providing connectivity for all of those jobs. And is sharing the resources amongst them, um, you know, handling any of the faults that that occur, um, and preferably not passing those faults up to the up to the software. I mean, the users have got enough hoops to, uh, enough hoops to to jump through in order to program at this level of parallelism. You you want to be able to handle the um, handle any errors that arise down in the network. So it's those kind of three themes: the scalability, the um, managing a mixed workload and um, um, and fault tolerance that, that are driving the network design for these big machines. Two things stuck in my mind as you were talking. First, it's a long-term effort. You mentioned people first start talking in 2008 and now it's uh, almost uh, 2021. And the other is uh, not just scaling time, but also scaling the size. We're talking, you know, about hundreds of thousands of, of, of nodes one needs to build them. It seems like a huge undertaking across many dimensions. So how do you accomplish that? 
So um, the work on um, uh, designing and building exascale systems in the US was as part of a Department of Energy R&D program that's uh, now called the Exascale Computing Program. Um, the, um, so this was, this was really a, what's called a co-design project in the, um, 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 in, in DOE circles. So this is the, um, the system and the process of vendors working together with, um, with application developers and researchers in the US government labs. Um, so um, we, early off, as you mentioned, the, um, this program started in, in 2009, 2010. Um, I, uh, I, I looked out a, a, um, a set of slides that Cray gave at a, at a workshop in 2009 on this subject. So it's, it's quite interesting to look back and see which of the ideas made it into the product. Um, there were a number of different potential designs. Um, at the start of the, the program, people had some really quite radical designs on what, um, on what they were gonna do or what they hoped to do in, this, in these programs. Um, what ended up happening is, um, it, you could say it ended up being a bit more conservative and most of the change, the, the processes um, being used or, or the development was more evolutionary um, and mostly what changed was the level of parallelism which of course the network has to deal with and so software has to deal with. There were a number of these different um, potential designs um, and you know together with the people working in the labs um, we started an evaluation as to how well um, the application program, the applications would perform on those different designs um, and how new applications which are being written as part of this same program could best use the hardware that's being developed. So, so that was uh, sort of the, the co-design process in that we would be saying to the lab, the people in the labs, what we could do and what it would look like and how it might be used. Um, and they were uh, providing feedback on things that they liked uh, but also adapting the way that new applications are written um, to run well on the style of machine that's being developed over this period. We so, were talking, yeah. sorry, go, go ahead. so initially in this there was quite a lot of uh, competition in this. Um, um, one of the good things about the, uh, the way the US does this work is that um, you know is that different companies put, put forward their own ideas about how this should um, this should uh, this should play out, and there's kind of a bake-off process, and um, and, um, and at the end of end of the day, um, you know, Cray won most of the system business, um, partnering with different CPU vendors at the different sites, and then of course uh, HPE acquired quite Cray. Yeah, let's not go there uh, <laughs> on what, because um, God knows what happens next. Um, you were talking uh, primarily at the high level, uh, but let's delve deep into the details of Slingshot. What is Slingshot? What does it mean? What are components? Um, so, so primarily Slingshot's a, a high bandwidth network. Um, it brings together ideas from Ethernet and from um, the specialist HPC networks, uh, particularly the, uh, the networks that had been developed um, at Cray. Um, 
I think over the last few few years, there were about eight of them. I, I worked on the, um, the on four, um, and that they were they prior to Slingshot, they'd always been proprietary networks, um, and one of the things that we were um, looking at, sort of one of the industry trends that we're kind of picking up on, was that HPC workloads are being embedded in a complex workflow um, that includes lots of pre and post processing tools. Increasingly, increasingly the, there are AI components to this workload, analytics components. So um, instead of the, um, uh, the archetypal cray in a bunker that you have to go and sit in front of in order to use, these systems are being integrated into people's networks and the jobs that are running on them were becoming part of a uh, complex workflow. Um, so that's really what made us feel that we needed to build a network that, um, that would integrate directly into people's data centers. You'd be able to use it with conventional programming models as well as HPC programming models. Um, so we decided that, um, um, that you know, when you look at it from the outside or when you connect anything to it, it's going to be an Ethernet, it's an Ethernet network and it uses standard protocols. Um, and the, um, the, the special IP that we uh, brought from, um, H, from our background uh, building HPC networks and that we developed in Slingshot, that's all within the, the network fabric itself. Um, so, um, so we think of them as being um, large instances of an Ethernet fabric um, where our, our um, the things that, that we've been developing operate on the inside and then on the outside they just look like a standard network. You can, um, you can connect other people's NICs, NICs and switches up directly up to the ports on a slingshot network, provided they, um, they work at 100 or 200 gigabit. Uh, we didn't implement any of the slower speeds. So it appears that uh, we are moving towards uh, open, open everything, uh, open interconnect in this case, or, or interoperable with uh, the other interconnects. But, Certainly but interoperable, um, common physical standards, um, common um, um, common APIs for interacting with with all of the surrounding components, and then um, th the way the place where we put our expertise is in the um, is in how you implement those protocols efficiently within the, the within the fabric of the machine. And, and what are the components of the slingshot? What are the physical artifacts that you use to run slingshot? So there are um, there are two um, ASICs that um, um, that we developed. Um, there's a switch called Rosetta um, and a NIC uh, called Cassini. Um, so these. Um, these were being developed within Cray, and we're continuing development of them um, within um, uh, within HPE. Um, so um, they're named after spacecraft. In fact, spacecraft that have executed slingshot maneuvers on the way to the outer planets. One of our early meeting, at one of our early meetings, was when the um, uh, Rosetta mission was just about getting to the comet, and its its lander was going down on that comet. And, and you know that was the um, that was the sort of exciting technical thing that was going on at the time, and, and we felt that was what we would we picked that for our project names. Right. So the um, um, 
the switch has um, 64 uh, ports. So it's 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 um, it's equivalent to the highest bandwidth that any switch, any of the switch vendors make today. Um, and the high port count means that we can build these low diameter networks um, with the minimum number of components. Especially, and it's especially important if we're building a big system. Um, and then the NIC Cassini is is really optimized for HPC optima, for HPC operations. So for MPI message passing and for one-sided memory access operations. Um, and, and the two of them um, can the two of them are used together in our big exascale systems. Um, we can um, we can use the switches with um, um, with um, network adapters for um, um, for a wide range of, of um, other different uh, from from other vendors for a wide range of different applications if we want to. You know, you might see us building um, um, building um, um, uh, supercomputing cloud systems, for example, as part of HPE, and uh, we could use um, uh, we could use either the same components or or our components with different NICs in in that environment as well. But before we get to these HPC clouds. Um, we are at the moment building these exascale dedicated systems. Uh, when when will they be available? Well, there are, there are none of them yet. Um, the uh, the Japanese are the closest. So the Fujitsu, uh, uh, I think they pronounce it Fugaku, but my I don't really know these things. Fugaku system um, is the closest so far, um, and and it's based on um, um, on an ARM CPU that that they've developed. Um, There'll be um, there'll be three initially in the U.S. Um, um, so we're starting to build up those systems now. Uh, they'll be available in um, uh, late uh, 2021. We'll we'll start to have them in the factories. Then um, um, then um, start to ship out in 2022. Um, the um, um, I expect there'll be several in China. Um, um, the um, the European Union starting a program as well. In fact, HPE just announced that we're working on a uh, um, a pre-exascale system with a consortium based in Finland. Um, so um, they'll be being built up over the next um, um, over next year and and into 2022, and then they'll start to ship out. Um, physically, they're very big, complex systems. You know, it'll take a while to set them up at the, at the sites and um, um, you know, get them going. Um, so uh, um, it'll be a year or two yet, um, but um, um, but there, you know, the application developers are, um, have been working on codes for them um, over the last, um, you know, really over the last five years or so, and they're starting to to um, um, to get those going on smaller systems, and and we'll be building up smaller system systems early next year. You mentioned that both Rosetta and Cassini, uh, these two ASICs, these two chips that um, comprise LinkShot are optimized for HPC, specifically for high bandwidth and then Cassini for MPI type of uh, interfaces and, and, and workloads. If you would apply um, the same interconnect to other type of uh, applications and requirements, for example, for low latency, uh, beside HPC business, we have mission critical 
systems which traditionally supported uh, in-memory databases, yeah. uh, SAP yeah. and things like that. So how would, uh, uh, how would you change uh, Slingshot and these components? Are they adaptable to these changes? What would you do? Um, so the, um, it, it's true to say that HPC applications are focused on, on bandwidth and on rate. Um, there's the assumption that there'll be um, lots of processes running on each of the nodes and they'll all be communicating at the same time. Um, and um, what we're looking to do is to is get a high aggregate rate of operations um, and um, to sustain um, high bandwidth um, for as small a transfer as possible. Uh, but but we have this enormous amount of parallelism and, and all of those uh, threads are assumed to be communicating. So sending messages or doing remote memory operations. So it's really an optimization for, um, uh, for, for throughput and um, for aggregate rate. Um, when you look at the, um, um, when you look at the workload, um, of a system as a whole running a mixture of jobs then what's what's really important is the um, um, is the tail latency so um, so not the best case quiet network latency um, but when you're operating a system under load um, how, how well um, do you um, uh, if many HPC applications have synchronization steps either global synchronization across the code or point-to-point -point synchronization between processes. Um, and so you want to optimize for the, for the tail latency so that you don't, um, you're not slowing down the critical path. Um, because um, if you have some global reduction, which typically happens every time step in a simulation code, um, and some of the processes come into that late because they have a um, a high worst case latency, then that slows down the whole thing. So, so we optimized for rate and for bandwidth and then um, for tail latency. So latency under load in a system. Um, if we look at some of the, um, if we look at the systems um, uh, like Superdome, um, the, uh, um, so the, that are used for running large in-memory databases, um, those, those are a little different in that, um, and that the optimization is, is really to get um, low latency, um, is to put in extra bandwidth to, to enable you to get low latency. So um, you, you, you want to be in a, in a position where the, the best case um, time for accessing remote memory is is achieved um, a lot of the time. So you're, you're over-provisioning the resources um, to help you achieve the best case performance. Um, if we look to things we're doing in the future, um, we'll be trying to, uh, to combine those ideas. So, so taking some of the um, ideas that were developed in Slingshot, um, and some of the things that um, HP Labs is doing in some of its projects and bringing those together so that we can build future net network technologies that span a wider range of, of uh, types of applications. 
It was so interesting as you were talking, I was thinking how much uh, two areas of high performance computing and general purpose computing have been borrowing from each other. This global reduction um, was borrowed into uh, now MapReduce types of application in general purpose, and then it, it goes back and forth. And you witnessed uh, these different areas of applications, both in high performance computing and other general purpose, starting from Inmos and transputers, over quadrics and many. Can you reflect? <laughs> can you reflect a little bit on this uh, historical path uh, towards today? Well, um, I mean, I started out doing a uh, um, a PhD in um, simulation algorithms for for uh, theoretical physics, and uh, that was a a point in time where um, neural networks, as uh, deep learning was called at the time, um, were being uh, developed, I, th I think they've gone through at least two, maybe three cycles of, uh, of yeah. development. Um, and um, the, um, um, that work kind of came to a stop because there wasn't enough computing power to make those things, to make the algorithm, there were interesting algorithms have been developed, there wasn't, but there wasn't enough uh, computing power to run them. Um, you look at other other points in the cycle, and there's there's abundant amounts of computing power, and the question is how to use it efficiently. Um, the uh, you know DARPA HPCS was actually all about productivity, and um, you know one of the things that it uh, um, that it led to um, was the Chapel programming language, which uh, Cray developed as a as a way of um, you know, a modern way of programming um, parallel computers, um, and um, one in which it, you um, you were less concerned about the um, the details of the of how you were going to move data around, and more concerned about expressing the parallelism in your in your application, and um, and then the uh, the compiler and the runtime would turn that into um, into parallelism. So. Um, I, th I think at the at the moment um, it is really efficient use of these of these systems that that's the key. Um, they um, we're able to build hugely powerful machines that can execute vast numbers of operations every every cycle, and it, it's a question of you know how to do that in um, uh, how to write those codes in a um, in a reasonable period of time. Um, Right when I started out, as as you mentioned, uh, I uh, I started my career working for Imos. In fact, they uh, um, they paid for my PhD, and and um, their um, their novel component, the, the transputer, was one that sort of combined um, uh, processing and communication, but both in the hardware and um, and in the programming model, um, and um, you know. Nobody programs in Occam anymore, but um, yep. the um, um, this, this idea about how we're going to um, um, how we're going to use these things efficiently, um, and what the application interfaces we should use um, in order to be productive in using parallel machines is this is a really important one, and then it gives the people who are designing a system something to aim at. Um, they can then look at, at an efficient way of implementing those um, those interfaces. You know, 
for too much of this my career it's been the other way around and uh, you know the hardware people did what you know we did what we wanted to do and uh, people had to struggle to um, people struggle to program them um, and um, looking forwards I think that's the thing that's um, that's going to change is that there'll be an increased emphasis on productivity on how to use parallelism efficiently and then um, the uh, the computer hardware itself will 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 uh, should at least become you know its design should be geared towards implementing that efficiently and that's probably because the scarce resource in this time are human experts so indeed for that exactly uh, through all these decades uh with the rise <laughs> all, all these the decades yeah that reminds me of a joke uh, from cray which is I was promoted to a senior principal engineer at Cray and I asked what it meant. And my colleague John Levesque said, it just means you're old, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, you witnessed rise and fall and rise again of neural networks. You went through startups, uh, competing and joining uh, large companies and all of that. But through all these years, one common location was Bristol. Uh, tell us a little bit, why did you stay in that uh, beautiful town? Mm -hmm. uh, on the um, on the west coast of, of UK. So, um, um, Brist <laughs> excuse me, Bristol and uh, Cambridge have always been the um, um, the centres for um, uh, silicon design in the UK. I mean, traditionally, uh, it was um, ARM processors and the related things in um, in Cambridge and um, consumer electronics in Bristol, but um, uh, but that was a, a while back and um both um both cities now have a few large companies and lots and lots of small ones um bristol has a really active uh startup scene uh, particularly at the moment particularly in in software um uh, you mentioned the west coast uh, it's quite like seattle which is where craze headquarters are uh in that sense and that it's on the west hand side of the country and it's really wet <laughs> So they 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 uh, uh, they're both places to go if you like uh, if you like the rain. Um, uh, it's an interesting, lively city. There are, um, there are two big universities, so lots of students. Um, there are lots of um, lots of restaurants and um, you know good quality local food suppliers. So it's a great place to live. Um, historically, it was it's more affordable than London, but. Uh, not so much. It's has become quite expensive over recent years. Um, Redlam, where I live, is um, perhaps the most liberal, one of the most liberal places in the country. Almost everyone here voted to remain in the European Union. So um, it's a nice city to um, uh, to live and work in. Um, and um, um, my uh, wife and I moved here um, when we. Uh, finished our studies and have been here ever since. Speaking of liberal town, um, this reminds me uh, of inclusion and diversity. We really care uh, in the United States about it and our company does a lot. What yeah. is the situation? How would you compare not just inclusion and diversity, but the whole uh, living and working and, and other aspects of uh, UK, Bristol specifically versus United States and the rest of the world? I've, I've not lived in the US for long. Um, you know, I visited over uh, 
many years and, and you know, I see uh, different sorts of atmospheres in the Midwest where uh, Cray was based and in California, obviously. Um, I've always lived in, in, in Bristol. It, it's, a, uh, um, it's a highly multi multicultural city. Um, there are people from all sorts of backgrounds. Um, I think that's really important. You know, when you're trying to do new things, you need a balance. You need a people with, uh, you need people with new ideas. You need people with, you know, highly developed skills and experience. You need diversity of all forms. Um, so, you know, we, we have people on our team who, uh, who started their careers in, um, in animation and in physics and in computer science. You know, we didn't all just come from the same, the same background. Um, diversity in tech, in tech is, is a big problem. Um, you know, there clearly aren't nearly enough women. Um, and um, it isn't going to be easy enough. It isn't going to be an easy thing to change. Um, you, you, um, you have to get people interested early. You have to maintain their interest through school and university. And you have to show them this is a, an attractive career to be working in for, uh, for their lives. So I think if you can show them um, an interesting, diverse working environment, you know, lots of interesting people, good career path, whatever their background, you know, that's what's gonna, that's what will bring a good, a broader range of people in, into tech. Um, and what, sorry, uh, one of the things I was gonna say is, is you notice when you come to, to HPE from a small company, series of small companies really. I mean, Cray had 1200 people when I joined and you know, it was by far the biggest company I'd ever worked for. But you come into to HPE and you see the huge effort that's being made on inclusion and also on things like uh, you know, charitable work and charitable giving. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very positive thing about working for HPE. I'm glad to hear uh, that you share our perspectives. How do you diversify your daily life? I mean, <laughs> we are we are geeks, you know. We are enamored with technology, but you know, you can't do it in and out for fifty years. You have to do something else as well. How do you recharge? What else do you do? Yeah, I'm not one of the more geeky people I know. I mean, I, I um, um, you know, I, I try and keep that sort of thing for work. Um, we we live in a uh, um, a nice Victorian house, and in fact, it was built in in, eight, in 1865. So it's got lots of space, but it also means there's lots of uh, lots of um, maintenance to do. You know, if I'm if I'm That's not doing uh, computer maintenance, it's I am doing <laughs> house maintenance. Um, there's enough space for three of us to uh, to be working from home at the moment. And my son's living in the south of France, but he's been back with us uh, on and off during lockdown. And my daughter's living in Manchester at the moment. Um, so if I'm, if I'm not working, um, you know, um, at the moment I'm uh, here most of the time, I'm probably cooking, it's a good way to relax. Um, um, I'd like to be traveling a bit more, but you know, that has to be um, on hold for a while. But we, we had a good uh, extended trip to, um, uh, to New Zealand just before lockdown. So, uh, um, that's the sort of thing I enjoy doing, some traveling, some hiking, some uh, photography, those sorts of things. 
And this uh, photography in your virtual background is this uh, rain about to fall in Bristol. Uh, this this is the um, uh, this is the Brunel suspension Brunel suspension bridge in Bristol. Yeah, um, very nice. So uh, there are, there are there are lots of uh, um, nice views of this from the. Uh, um, there's a river gorge that runs from the city down to the sea and expands the gorge. And you never mentioned the uh, quality breweries in... Um... <laughs> yeah, there, there have been a, a number of quality breweries in Bristol over the years. So uh, um, hopefully you'll get a chance to uh, uh, come here again soon and uh, uh, we can check out which are the uh, good quality breweries these days. Okay, or we'll, we'll go to some breweries in, in Mountain. Yeah, that sounds a good idea. Yeah, thank you very much, Duncan. I, I learned quite a bit about uh, interconnects. Uh, we did one-on-one on interconnects. Thank you very <laughs> much. Uh, and, and also other perspectives were quite insightful. Thank you. Okay, good to speak to you, Dan.